morning, everyone. It's such a privilege to be here to be able to share God's Word with you. We've been spending the last month or so studying the Gospel of Mark. Um, as we know, Mark, uh, the author of Mark, is traditionally uh, considered to be the John Mark, who's uh, noted in the book of Acts. Um, he, was, uh, he assisted Paul and Barnabas in their early missionary journeys, and uh, he also had a family home that was often uh, the gathering place for early Christians. Um, Mark eventually became a close associate of Peter, uh, Jesus' lead apostle, and uh, they joined together to minister around Asia Minor and Rome. And according to Papias, who was a disciple of Apostle John, uh, he says Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered of, of the things said and done by the Lord. So Mark's gospel is an accurate record of Peter's teaching, which was captured faithfully by Mark while acting as Peter's scribe. This means that much of what is recorded in Mark's gospel is from Peter's perspective and reflects his understanding and experience. Now today we're going to turn to chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. This is one of only two chapters in Mark's gospel devoted to Jesus' actual teaching, the other being chapter 13, which records Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives toward the end of his ministry. Uh, unlike the gospels of Matthew and Luke, uh, Mark spends more time highlighting Jesus' actions, uh, quickly moving from one event to the other, often using the word immediately to kind of move the pace along. Uh, reading Mark's kind of like reading a fast-paced action novel. Um, so there's, there's very little actual teaching that is recorded, but this is one of those chapters, actually the first one where he does so. But here, uh, Jesus' teaching appears in the form of parables. Now, simply stated, a parable is basically a lesson uh, told in pictures or illustrations, kind of like the tortoise and the hare. Um, but for Jesus, uh, he uses parables, um, uh, using everyday objects, events, and circumstances to illustrate one or more spiritual truths. Uh, and uh, he's using them, he's designing them to test the spiritual responsiveness of his listeners. Okay, so th this chapter we're going to be looking at has a series of four parables. Uh, they're often called kingdom parables because they all concern the kingdom of God. Uh, the first two, the parable of the sower and the parable of the lamp, uh, they concern the uh, various responses of Jesus' revelation of the kingdom. And then uh, the last two, the parable of the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed, deal with the growth of that kingdom. Now some of you may be wondering, what is this kingdom of God Jesus is referring to? Um, now to answer that in detail would take uh, at least one sermon, if not more. Um, so I'm going to try and give you a Wikipedia version of what the, uh, the kingdom is about. Uh, so for context, we must go all the way back to God's creation. Uh, when God finished creating everything, he said that it was all very good. Everything was perfect and peaceful. It was full of beauty. There was no worry, unhappiness, sickness, pain, or death because there was no sin in the world and God was the creator and ruler of all. 
And when Adam and Eve were placed in this perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden, they knew that God was their creator and ruler. He, he walked in their midst, and they enjoyed special fellowship with him. He provided for all their needs, and he gave them dominion over all the earth as his royal administrators to steward his creation and to spread the blessings of his reign throughout the earth. This garden kingdom that was established was meant to become a global kingdom where people would rejoice and the world would flourish under God's is my time up already? <laughs> under under God's loving reign. <laughs> but Satan intervened in the guise of serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to rebel against God and be their own authority. So, so they ate the forbidden fruit, and as a result, sin and death entered the world, and all of creation was cursed. And today, the world we live in is still under that curse of sin and death. Yet, as soon as the curse entered the world through sin, God began to reveal his plan to reverse the curse and restore his reign on earth through Eve's offspring, who would crush Satan's head. This plan of restoration was later confirmed through God's covenant with Abraham, promising that through Abraham's offspring, God would reestablish his kingdom authority on earth. About 500 years later, God promised King David that someone from his family would always sit on the throne of Israel and his kingdom will last forever. And then the Old Testament prophets confirmed this fact and said that a righteous king would descend from the line of David through whom God would restore his reign on earth and his kingdom would have no end. So all of, all of this, all of this that was foretold was looking toward a coming king who would restore God's righteous reign on earth. And so the people kept looking for this king. And so now we fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Mark records in chapter 1 that Jesus appeared, proclaiming the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He was claiming, he was proclaiming all that was foretold about God's plan to redeem humanity and restore God's rule over all of creation had finally arrived. Jesus, God's chosen king, is here. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what the people were waiting for. But instead of rejoicing at the good news, the people basically shrugged. The religious authorities sought to destroy him because Jesus and the kingdom he was describing was not what they anticipated. This wasn't what the... God's chosen king was supposed to come and do. He was supposed to be a military king. He was going to come and execute divine justice and, and bring in God's royal reign uh, and overcome Rome and all the oppressors of Israel. This, this is the king we're looking for. But Jesus came to reveal the way of the kingdom is through suffering and sacrifice and servanthood and for this, he was despised and rejected. So Jesus is presenting uh, in chapter 4 these kingdom parables to instruct his followers and to caution his opponents regarding the nature of the kingdom of God and the response required to be accepted into that kingdom. 
Now, because it's essential that we grasp the point of these parables, I'm going to take a lot of time reading through the passage, offering many explanatory remarks, some lengthy, to try to um, uh, define what Jesus is referring to. Some of these are difficult passages, um, so we need to work through them. Um, and, but after doing so, I'm then going to ask three questions aimed at applying Jesus' teaching to our lives. Then I'm going to conclude with the main idea that runs through all of the parables to, to tie it all together. So let's turn to Mark 4, 1 through 34. So he begins, And he began to teach beside the sea. This would be the Sea of Galilee. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. This may seem very odd, um, but because of his growing popularity, Jesus began avoiding teaching in the cities and the towns because the crowds had become so large and had pressed in on him so hard that they were about to crush him. So back in chapter 3, he told his disciples, have a boat ready for me in case I need to um, climb aboard and preach from there so that the crowds don't um, literally don't crush me. And that's what he's doing here, because this crowd was so large that he, he sat in a boat and preached from there. Now, you need to understand, though, that the acoustics around the Sea of Galilee from, uh, from the boat would have been very good, so that everybody would have been able to hear what he had to say. Okay. So turning back to, to verse 2, And he was preaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. In other words, pay attention. This is important. And he said, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. This would be the walking path between the fields that would have been tramped down and very hard. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you were in the crowd, that's all you would have heard. He would have left it there and without explaining any of it. And the people would be left to figure out what Jesus meant by this. And since he was in Galilee, which was largely agricultural, he was talking to a number of farmers, uh, people who dealt with soils and, and sowing. So what Jesus just described was common practice in the area. It was nothing new to them. So the only thing that may have stood out is the size of the yield, since the average yield in the area was only 10 to 15 fold. So 30, 60, and 100 fold was a little out of the ordinary. It was actually a very good harvest. This may have stood out to them. So they may have uh, heard him and just thought, gee, maybe, maybe Jesus was telling us 
we shouldn't be casting our seed everywhere. Maybe we need to just save our seed for the good soil. Maybe, maybe that's where we're going to grow a great harvest. Or, or, or maybe, maybe he has some kind of magic seed that we need to get so he can grow some really good harvest here. But they, they really had no idea what the point of what Jesus was saying was. Though they heard what he was saying, they just couldn't understand. So that's why Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because he was intentionally targeting those who received his words with open hearts that would allow them to understand and apply his message appropriately. That was the aim of his parables. He wanted to bring understanding. He wanted them to truly hear what he was saying. And those that wanted to hear would come to him and ask. And that's where we pick up in in verse um, 10. (laughs) And when he, referring to Jesus, was alone, those around him with the twelve, these would be other disciples that were with the twelve disciples, they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Now again, this deserves some explanation. What is he, what is he saying here? The word secret is better translated mystery. And the, a mystery refers to a spiritual truth that is concealed from human understanding. It can only be made known by God. It's an act of grace. The mystery here is the identity of Jesus, God's chosen king. The disciples were given the secret of the kingdom because their hearts were open to his word and and who he was. And so they were given grace to understand and grow in their knowledge of who Jesus was and what this kingdom was that he was referring to. They were given grace. Now those outside included many within the crowd who were just curious onlookers. They were hoping to witness or experience healing. They had no desire to know who Jesus really was, and they really didn't care to understand his teaching. They had no, uh, no desire. The outsiders also included Jesus' own family, who thought he was out of his mind. And you also had the religious authorities who accused Jesus of acting on Satan's authority, and were seeking to destroy him. To these outsiders, everything Jesus said and did was in parables. It was, it was a riddle, a confusing puzzle. They saw no revelation of the kingdom of God in Jesus' miracles, his teaching, or even later in his death and resurrection. They had no understanding, therefore they were left in the dark. So, Jesus goes on, he explains that these outsiders heard everything in parables so that, in verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Again, this is another difficult passage, but to understand it, we need to understand that Jesus is paraphrasing God's words to the prophet Isaiah that were given several centuries earlier in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 uh, by paraphrasing God's words to Isaiah. Jesus was drawing a comparison between his ministry and Isaiah's. 
Now in Isaiah, God tells the prophet to go preach to the disobedient people of Israel. However, God lets Isaiah know up front that as he tells the people the truth, their hearts are only going to become harder because of their stubborn refusal to listen to God's word. Even though, though the people will see and hear the truth of God coming from Isaiah, they will not learn anything, nor will they understand. And as a result, they will not repent and seek forgiveness. That's what God was telling Isaiah. Go ahead and preach to these people. They're not going to listen. They're not going to understand. And they're not going to turn. That was the state of Israel at the time. Jesus used his parables here in the same way. In effect, Jesus is saying, I could try to teach, explain, illustrate, and describe God's kingdom and the, and, uh, the truth. However, for those who have made their minds up about me or don't care to hear, it will do no good. For those whose hearts are already hard as pavement will not see my miracles for what they are. And they will not hear my truth for what it is. If they did, they would turn to me and be forgiven. But they never will because of the hardness of their hearts. So I tell the parable without giving its meaning. And for those who see and want to learn, and for those who hear and want to understand, I'm available for them to come and ask me questions and learn of me. Now picking up back, back up with verse 13. Jesus say, uh, said to them, referring to his disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower see, sows the word. Now again, I need to pause and tell you why Jesus said what he said. He indicates the seed is God's word. And, and, of course, the sower is understood to be Jesus in this parable. Although, by extension, the sower is anyone who teaches God's truth to someone else. At the moment, I'm the sower. By telling the parable, Jesus was actually exemplifying it. He was sowing the seed of the word by telling the parable of the sower. He was essentially giving a parable about himself and the reception of his teaching. That's why the disciples' understanding of the parable was so crucial. Their ability to receive and understand his word reflected their understanding of him and the type of soil that they represented, and whether they would be accepted into the kingdom or not. So Jesus, in verse 15, says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now this type of soil represents those whose hearts are either indifferent toward Jesus and his word or unwilling to accept his teaching. They're the hard ground. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This type of soil represents those who show interest and awareness in the gospel, yet their hearts aren't fully convicted, so that when trouble comes, their faith isn't strong enough to stand. Then he continues in verse 18, And others 
are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This type of soil represents those that have idols and distractions in life. Worries, riches, lusts. They take over their minds and hearts and prevent them from growing in the truth of God's word. This is the biggest enemy within the church today. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. The parable basically says, fruit bearing is an essential mark of those belonging to the kingdom of God. The hearer must have a heart like fertile soil in order to grow the harvest. Now the second parable is known as the parable of the lamp. And that begins at verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, to understand this, the the lamp in this parable is the message of the kingdom, similar to the seed in the parable of the sower. This message, when spoken, reveals the hidden hearts, or, again, drawing a parallel, the soils, of those who hear by requiring them to respond. Their hearts can no longer remain hidden. When the message of the kingdom is spoken, it exposes what people's true heart conditions are, how they receive it. So it no longer is, is hidden. Jesus indicates that his message will not be hidden forever and will ultimately be placed on a stand for all to see when he returns in glory. His message is not one that's going to stay hidden. It needs to be spoken because ultimately we're all going to know at the end when he returns. So in verse 24 he continues, And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Now by measure here, Jesus is referring to the attitude with which the word of Jesus is being received. Okay, how are you receiving the word? Okay. If, um, with the um, measure that you receive it, it will be returned to you. You will gain greater understanding. He says, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So in other words, one's insight into the meaning of the first parable, the parable of the sower, and what he's indicating there with the different responses. Your insight into that will lead to spiritual perception of others, while one's lack of understanding will lead to more confusion and uncertainty. You won't understand anything. You need to understand God's word, his message of the kingdom. The third parable is often referred to as the parable of the growing seed. 
And it switches the focus from the listener's reception of the kingdom message to the nature of the kingdom itself. Now, beginning at verse 26, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and a seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now the emphasis here, basically is nothing going to stop the advancement of God's kingdom. So long as the word of the kingdom is sown, God will give the increase. It's within his power to do so. However, the growth of the kingdom is going to be a slow and steady process that, that happens virtually unnoticed, providing as many people as possible the opportunity to be part of the future kingdom of God that will be established here on earth. It's a slow and steady growth so that others can understand and become insiders, can become part of God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is indicating here. And then the fourth parable, it's called the parable of the mustard seed. And that begins at verse 30. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is a picture of kingdom's surprising growth from small beginnings. Jesus' ministry only lasted three years, and he only had a handful of disciples. Yet the kingdom of God will grow so large, it will become the greatest of all kingdoms, and it's going to last for eternity. So he's indicating don't be, don't be deceived by the smallness that, that, of the start, the beginning, how it began. And even today, you know, the, the fact that God's kingdom does not appear to be um, growing, it, it is. It's growing unnoticeably. It's growing in places we don't even know. And it will continue until he returns. And then when he does return, it's going to be the greatest kingdom. And that's what he's indicating here. So then he concludes by noting, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He didn't speak to them without a parable, basically saying generally everything was a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now that we've taken time to read and explain the, the parables, I'm going to ask three questions aimed at applying Jesus' teaching to our lives. And then I'm going to conclude again with the main point that runs through all the parables. So the first question I have for you, Tri-County, what kind of sower are you? Notice the sower in the first parable. He doesn't prejudge the soil. He doesn't decide in advance whether the soil has potential or not, or whether it's a waste of seed to throw it there. The sower's approach is to fling the seed as he goes, letting it land wherever it will, and then to move on. 
To the sower, it's as if the seed is so precious he can't hold on to it. It has to be shared. To hold on to that seed would be to to squander it, to waste it. Do you treat the message of God's kingdom in the same way? Is it so precious to you that you just have to share it with everyone you meet? Or are you like me and you prejudge the soil? You're more, you're more comfortable sharing God's word with those you're familiar with. Or maybe you avoid sharing it with those who just don't seem like they'd be very receptive. Or maybe they're undesirable in some way. Maybe they appear unworthy. At times we could be so arrogant in how we share the word. But Jesus shared the word of the kingdom wherever he went. And it found good soil in places where others thought nothing good could grow. He reached out to the outcasts of society, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the unclean, the destitute, all those that the religious authorities thought were offensive. Jesus reached all of them. Not only that, he reached those who doubted him. He even... even reached out to those religious authorities who wanted to destroy him. He didn't hide the truth from anyone. He brought it to light so that their hearts may respond. That's the message that runs through this. All the the parables allow the listeners' hearts to respond. The only way you can do that is to make the message known. And that's what we should do. The parable of the sower tells us to sow the seed of God's word liberally and without discrimination. Not only that, not to be discouraged if it lands on bad soil. In fact, we should expect frustration and failure. Again, looking back at the parable of the sower, three of the four seeds were bad. That's what we're going to run into when we share God's word. It's not going to be accepted by all. In fact, it's going to be accepted by few. Okay, but don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Just continue sowing. We're simply called to spread the gospel wherever we go and to whomever we meet and leave it to God to grow the harvest. God, help us. Help me to be a better faithful sower of the seed. Second question I have for you. What kind of soil are you? Jesus spoke parables to reveal the thoughts and intentions of his listeners' hearts. Whether we are truly part of God's kingdom is proved by our choices and actions after hearing the gospel. The good soil is the person who has heard and received the word of God's kingdom and allows it to take root and grow within his life, submitting to the authority of King Jesus. This person represents true salvation that bears good fruit. All other soil types, the hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, describe people who don't fully hear the word so that it never takes root and fails to produce good fruit in their lives. Sadly, unless their hearts change, these people will not enter the kingdom. So you must ask yourself, what what type of soil am I? Is there part of God's word or authority that you're unwilling to accept 
and apply to yourself because it's too hard or inconvenient. Or maybe you're just not interested in what God has to tell you today. If so, you're that hard soil that God's word will not penetrate. I urge you to soften your hearts to hear what God is trying to tell you. Or maybe you're here today and you've heard the gospel and thought you believed, but now you're going through a difficult time and the faith you thought you had is withering. Don't fall away. Allow the truth of the gospel message that Jesus is God's chosen king who has come to restore God's rule on earth. We go, allow that truth, that message to penetrate your heart and grow deeper roots within you so you can be strengthened and remain standing. Or maybe you're here today and you've allowed the cares of this world to distract you from God's word. Or you have a habit or desire that has become an idol in your life and chokes out your ability to hear what God is telling you. If this is you, I urge you to give your burdens, whatever they may be, to King Jesus. He's willing to take them. He's standing there waiting to take them. Give them over to him. Put aside the things that have become idols in your life. Commit yourself to reading and hearing God's word and find rest and hope in his promises. Return to the king. Commit yourself. If you haven't fully committed your life to the authority of Jesus, I urge you to do so today. Don't wait. Don't wait. One thing is certain. Jesus is God's chosen king, and he will return to bring God's judgment upon those who don't submit to his authority. That is a certainty. And we don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know when the harvest will be ripe for reaping. Don't wait. Be part of the kingdom that he offers. And so, the third question I put to you is where does your hope lie it's easy to look at our fallen world and ask where is God in all of this where is this kingdom Jesus is talking about from all appearances it seems as though his kingdom doesn't exist I mean look at what's going on around us but that's the point Our world and all of creation remains under the curse of sin and death so that nothing in our present world can fully reflect the future glory of God's kingdom on earth. If you're looking for it here, you're looking in the wrong place. Your hope is not here. It cannot rest in anything in this world but must rest instead on the kingdom yet to come. But to fully embrace this hope, we must have a biblical understanding of what this eternal kingdom will look like. What are we looking forward to? You know, sadly, many Christians have a skewed view of eternity that is unbiblical and, and frankly, boring. Similar to the view captured by John Eldridge in his book, The Journey of Desire. In that book, he writes, Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I have nothing against singing hymns or giving God unending praise that he deserves. But if that's your only vision of eternity, then I guess you have very little fueling your desire for the kingdom. And if you believe that's all there is, then you'll be more inclined to agree with the secular worldview, that you better see and experience all you can on this present earth while you're still here. Because, after all, you only live once. But that mindset will only lead to disappointment and regret over all the things you failed to see and do. And you will end up feeling hopeless and defeated. This is the state of many Christians today. And it falls right into our enemy's hands. You see, Satan wants us to put all of our hope in this world. Satan knows he can't defeat Jesus head to head. Okay, he already tried that. He tried that in the wilderness, right? He tempted him for 40 days, and Jesus didn't, didn't budge. Right? His demons are cast out, and they know the authority of Jesus. Okay, he, knows, he knows that Jesus overcame the power of sin and death when he died on that cross and rose again. He's a defeated foe. But don't be deceived. He's not giving up. Yes, he will be cast out into lake of fire. But he wants to take as many of us as he can with him. So we need to have our hope in the right place. He wants us to focus on the things that he offered in this world. And we need to store up treasures for the next. We have so much greater hope than what waits for us in this world. Consider what Apostle John reports near the end of the book of Revelation when he received a vision of the eternal kingdom. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who has seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did you catch that? There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And they will be patterned after God's original perfect creation that I described earlier before sin entered the world. Only it will be more, even more glorious to us because we've spent our entire existence living in our present sin-filled world. So we're definitely going to see a difference. This thought occurred to me the other night when My wife Sue and I were taking a walk late at night, and it it was a perfect night. The the sky was filled with stars. It was clear sky, bright stars, brisk, fresh air, sweet smells, and Sue couldn't help but comment how how beautiful it was. You just wanted to 
to take that moment and, and put it in a box, right? And I said, you know, if we took a snapshot of this very time, this, this, this feeling we have, and magnify it by a thousand or more, that's what we're going to experience on a new earth. And we're going to experience it every day for eternity. And not only that, but the best meal you've ever eaten in this life will be like table scraps compared to the food that awaits us. Sorry, honey. She's a wonderful cook. I can, I can imagine she's over there with table scraps, huh? <clears throat> this is the kingdom of God. This is, we're going to have great food. And yes, we will have the ability to eat and drink in heaven because we will have real bodies. We're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around in the air as some envision. But we will have new resurrected bodies free of any form of disability, sickness, or pain. And we will have relationships as they were intended to be, free of conflict, free of jealousy, bitterness, or hidden motives. And there's so much more we're going to experience if we just hold fast to our hope in King Jesus. To understand more about the hope that awaits us in God's eternal kingdom, I highly recommend the book Heaven by Randy Elkhorn, which Pastor Joe has previously referenced on several occasions. I know we have a couple copies available in the, in the lobby. I just encourage you to, if you haven't already read it, pick it up, read it. It's just such an exhilarating description of what, what awaits us. Alcorn provides a biblically sound, enthralling picture of the new creation that awaits all true believers in Christ in the future kingdom. And in the middle of that book, he makes the following observation regarding our hope in eternity. He says, Everything changes when we grasp that all we love about the old earth, the good things, not the sinful ones, will be ours on the new earth, either in one form or another. Once we understand this, we won't regret leaving all the wonders of the world behind that we've seen or mourn not having seen its countless wonders. Why? Because we will yet be able to see them. And may I add, we'll have eternity to do so. So, so easy for us to get caught up on the things that we missed in this life. To get caught up in regrets of things that I wish I had seen or done. To orchestrate our lives about going to make sure I see everything before I leave this earth. And guess what? The good gifts that God has given us on this earth, they're going to be there. They're going to be waiting for us. We're going to get to experience them whenever we want for eternity. I pray that understanding fuels your desire for God's kingdom. Now, in conclusion, I just want to conclude with the main idea that runs through all the parables. It's, it's fairly, uh, fairly simple. Jesus is God's chosen king to bring God's promised kingdom on earth. The kingdom of God begins small but ends huge. It's hidden but then revealed. It cannot be contained by its opponents. 
And it will eventually take over all creation when Jesus comes to restore God's reign on earth. That's our unfailing hope. And it should lead us to proclaim, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that your message of the kingdom has fallen on good soil this morning. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to the unfailing hope that awaits us, that this this hope penetrates our hearts, that it grows deep roots within us, that it causes us to live our lives for eternity and not only for what's in this world. Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come. I thank you, Lord, for sending your son and the hope he provides. I pray we hang on to that hope. In Jesus' name.